0: Hello, and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker, I'm Scott Horwood, and I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're looking at our top three favourite game mechanics from various RPGs. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, what is going on? We, we are assuming
1: that by the time this episode goes out, you will have in your virtual hands a copy of the PDF of the Blasphemous Tome Issue 4.
2: B. A courier-free version. None, none of that appalling <laughs> font anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, and one that has not been borne to you by a courier. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or by a key, or any other oh, winged e-bi- beast. e a Mm. so this is our fanzine that we send out to all our backers on patreon and it features a new scenario by myself called fallout and various articles and a story by yourself scott am i right yeah that's
1: right Uh, a story called forgotten a fairly short piece my microfiction, but it's a story
0: marvelous no some cocktail bits and various other book porn pieces (laughs) excellent so you can get your copy by backing us on patreon I've got one more bit of news. Oh, lay, lay, lay it on us, Paul. Lay it on us. It's a joke. Uh okay. yeah. oh. Okay. You mean, you mean like the regular news? Like, <laughs> like a homage to something we've had in previous episodes the Wurzels. Oh, fuck's sake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> where, where did the Wurzels learn all their Cthulhu mythos knowledge? Go on. From a grimoire! Oh, gold. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh.
2: Comedy gold.
1: <laughs> so so we, we start off the new segment by giving people a reason to back us, and we end up by alienating them all.
2: And, and lose half the audience,
0: yeah. We give it <laughs> and take away. <the> <laughs> and now, on to our top three game mechanics.
1: Over the course of the podcast, we've discussed a fair number of different RPG systems, and we've gone into their game mechanics and and talked about the things that we like. But this time we thought it might be interesting to pick out some mechanics in isolation. You know, I I think largely from games we haven't talked about on the podcast before, Though, I I think Matt may let us down on this front. Oh yeah. I'm I'm there (laughs) to
2: screw plans up every time.
1: But yeah, yeah, we're going to get more granular. We'll go into yeah, you know, some specific mechanics and and talk about what we find interesting about them,
2: how they inspire us. And we haven't talked to each other beforehand as to what ones we've chosen. So, dear listeners, place your bets now. Who's going to overlap with who? Yeah, I mean <laughs>
1: we we've said this is a top three, so we've we prepared three each. So in theory you should get nine. If you got fewer than that, it's because we didn't coordinate in advance and we've overlapped.
0: Woohoo! But we like surprises. Okay, uh-huh. well, who's going to begin? So my first top mechanic comes from the new edition of D&D, and it's death saving throws. W- weren't those in there before? No. Well, you had save versus death. Oh no, no, no! This is this is something different. So when you are reduced to zero hit points, rather than dying outright, you have two rows of three little boxes. One listed successes, and one listed failures and on your turn in the next round because you're laid there dying you roll a d20 and if you roll 10 or above you tick a success box and if you roll a nine or below you tick a failure box and once all your successes are full you're stabilized you're not dying anymore you're on zero hit points you're perhaps down unconscious but you're not gonna die but if you reach three failures first you're dead yeah i mean that's Almost a little bit like the, the mechanic
1: in Call of Cthulhu, where you're um, making constitution rolls when you're, you've taken a major wound and you're down on zero hit points to see whether you die.
0: It's a little like that, but this is a kind of a best of five yeah. Uh, deal. Yeah, and it, very it builds the little... tension more. It does, because yeah. every time it comes round to you, you know it's a limited thing. And every time it comes round, you're going to roll that d20 and you're going to be one step nearer to either dying or recovering. If you roll a one, you automatically get two failures. If you roll a 20, you automatically get two successes. And if something, I was playing D&D just last Sunday and somebody fell down and was like this and there was a gnoll that had attacked them and the gnoll has this power that when a foe goes down, they can like gore them. But that was okay because the goring attack did some damage, but to the person who's already on zero hit points, if they take some damage, it's just another marked failure.
1: And can someone jump in there with, say, a healing spell?
0: Absolutely. So they can get in there and deliver, like, a medicine roll or the various myriad number of sort of healing spells and powers and so on that they can use. So most times somebody goes down and they're on the floor and there'll be enough time for them to get brought back up. But there's always that threat. And it was quite a panic at the table among people you know, how are we going to save these people? Because there's still combat going on, there's still monsters. Because it means you've got to use an action to try and save somebody. So, Mm. uh, yeah, it's a good mechanic. It kind of, it's just why I like it is because it's not just a, oh, you're dead. It builds a tension at the table, and each round you're having to re roll, and you're kind of upping the stakes with each roll as you go around. Yeah, I I know we discussed this a little
1: bit on our death episode, but I'm particularly fond of mechanics that actually make dying more interesting than just you hit zero hit points, you're dead. So, you know, for example, is it Dungeon World where you can make a role when your character dies to mm. do something interesting sort of as you enter the afterlife and perhaps bargain for your life and
0: stuff Yeah, like, like make a deal with death to kind of come yeah. back or be given a, a mission or something like that. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yes, or, or the the one from the books of Pandemonium uh, where when your character dies, you automatically get full hit points and lots of fury points and stuff like that. And you get to go on a killing spell. Is as, you know, as long as your character uh, dies at the end of it?
0: Hmm. I
2: just can't get past the name of that monster. A knoll. I always get thinking, thinking there were grassy things that you shot presidents from behind. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's half gnome, half troll, apparently,
0: oh, and resembles a land feature. Yeah. No. But yeah, I mean, I guess I like mechanics which are fun to play as well, and that's fun to play.
1: Well, and it also has the merit of being simple. Um, I, there were a few mechanics I considered when we were talking about doing this where I thought, you know, they, they might be too simple to actually talk about just because you know, can explain them in a few seconds. But I think that's a good example of one that, you know, mechanically, you know, you can explain but has, you know, so, some surprising depth to it, at least in gameplay.
0: Yeah, it's fun, it's simple, it's easy to grasp and does what's required of it. So, what's lurking in your list, Scott? Well, I went for something a
1: bit more involved for my first choice, which is an entire resolution mechanic. It's a fairly simple resolution mechanic, but it's it's the entire resolution mechanic for the game. And the game in particular is Archipelago. Uh, In particular, the third edition of Archipelago, otherwise known as Archipelago 3... It's a fairly generic set of rules. There's no background to it, but it's designed to model something a bit like Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea. It's a GMless game. Everyone plays a single character. Uh, you create a map, and you know it's about sort of journeys between places, and the you know the, the slow build up of the challenges you face as you you go on quests to try to meet your destiny. And it's a, a really cool, simple game. It's uh, a Norwegian game written by uh, Matthias Holter. Yeah, it's free to download, so I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and there are lots of cool mechanics in it, which I won't get into, but the, the core one, which I really like, is the resolution mechanic. I'm I'm a sucker for a good resolution mechanic. And this basically builds on improv techniques. So whenever you hit a decision point in the game, you draw a card. And the cards are, you know, a special deck of cards for Archipelago. Um, they, it's used in a few other games, like uh, Idris B as well. Basically, the um, th- there's a few different categories of cards which let you know whether or not your action was successful. But in, in improv terms, you know, they're, they're the classic yes and, yes but, perhaps, no but, and no and. So and we've seen variants of this in a number mm. of games. I mean, it's sort of, I guess, at the heart of, say, something like uh, Apocalypse World. What this does is that it puts... Uh, sort of sub descriptors on all of these as well to sort of prompt you with something that you can introduce into your narrative that will enhance the the flow of the the narrative. Yeah, for example, yes, and you earn a friend, reward, or good reputation in the process, or something completely unrelated is a smashing success. Yeah, you've got yes, but your success will cause great personal harm. Uh, you earn a new enemy, debt, or bad reputation in the process. Your success will harm a friend, ally, or loved one. You know, perhaps this isn't something you can do alone. Help is needed. But if you want this done, someone more suited to the task must do it. So, yeah, you know, that immediately you know creates all sorts of story possibilities. It's not just a simple you know you have passed, you have failed. It suddenly, yeah, you know, all, all all these additional complications you've got to deal with, and then the failures. Yeah, you know, you've got no but, your failure helps another succeed, you earn a friend ally or goodwill in the process, or has, un, you know, unexpected positive consequences. And, you know, if you really fuck up, you've got no and, something completely unrelated goes badly wrong, or, or someone or something dear to you is harmed, lost or destroyed.
0: And are these cards just picked at random? Yeah, that's So right. any of those outcomes could come into play, and it's not down to any modifiers that, no. and this is a
1: gm-less game it is so you right. it, you basically go around in terms and in turns and everyone else sort of takes on the role of the gm or you know it takes over different aspects of the game world and you play your character at that point
0: okay so it's gm-less and no dice yeah i might have to have a shower I don't know. <laughs> I'm, feeling, I'm feeling very dirty now <laughs> not sure about this Uh, But
1: but my experience of playing this, both playing uh, Archipelago and Idris B, is that... These outcomes do, as you might guess from some of those, those descriptions, sort of dynamically generate situations in the story mm. that then force you into interesting actions, take things in unexpected directions. And for a GM-less game, I think that is fairly essential because no one's come to the table with any idea of what's going to happen. So you need these prompts to make things happen.
0: I like the sound of that. I think it's pretty cool that it doesn't just tell you success failure and it doesn't just tell you yes and yes but and all that. But if it gives you other things which are in the flavor of the the kind of stories you're playing, like you just described, that's almost taking the role of what the gm would exact come back at yeah. you with isn't it yeah yeah um i seem to think when i played it we didn't have cards maybe that was an earlier edition or maybe it was just maybe i'm just misremembering it. it's quite a long time ago but...
1: yeah i've only ever played archipelago 3 i i thought those cards were in all three versions i mean they they don't actually originate with archipelago apparently they come out of the uh, the, the norwegian style book that came out oh gosh some 10 or 15 years ago and someone just you know published these cards as a resolution mechanic
0: and then they've they've been used in other things mm. yeah because you can see those being used in all manner of games oh yeah yeah
1: yeah
0: right man what have you got for us right as
2: he's, mentioned, looking, he's gone... looking in
0: his big book yeah
2: <laughs> i did in fact bring copies of the rule books with me if in case i needed to uh, spot up on some of these mechanics I'm fairly, fairly sure at some point in time I may have mentioned a game that uh, is high up there on my favourites list. Imagine a time that is quite iconic in history and is ripe for picking in horror, so much so that Chaosium did Down Darker Trails, but before then we had Deadlands, the Weird ah. West. And my favourite character class in any game... It is the Huckster. Oh, yeah! <laughs> Anything that allows me to play poker at the table and get power out of it is all good. I,
1: I did toy with the idea of, of uh, talking about the resolution mechanic from Dust Devils, which is also mm. poker, but I, I'm glad I didn't
2: Ah, oh, there you go. Right, there's two different versions of Deadlands. There's Deadlands the Weird West, the original uh, game published back in, the, back in the 90s now. And then there's Deadlands Reloaded, which uses the Savage Worlds mechanics. I've played the Savage Worlds one, but looking at the original game, which I hope one day I'll either get to run or play it because it's it's really nice, it's good, has a much more interesting mechanic. But I can see now, having read through the original rule book, where one of James Mullins' comments was uh, where that came from. In Reloaded, a huckster is stand back, boys. I'm going to uh, take care of this problem single handed. And then in the original Deadlands, it's the huckster gets up and says, "Don't worry, lads. I'm going to take care of this wherever you're gone." <laughs> yeah, don't they
1: have a nasty tendency to explode
2: Hell yeah <laughs> That things can go wrong Very very badly in, uh, in the original version uh, It's just unlike Any other you know, character class And how their spell well in inverted commas spells work um, You take each spell or hex As they're called in the game And you turn it into an ability In its own right so that every time you cast That one particular spell it is a particular Dice pool that you're using course, then that means that you're going to have a fairly limited spread of um, hexes that you can cast as you start having to then think, oh, this is a really good one, I've got to invest points in that one now, and then slowly build up over time. Whereas with the reloaded version, it's just a single spell casting die roll that you use and you have access to anything, as long as your level of a character means that you have access to it. So you can cast all the basic level spells, and then when you go up to your next level, you can cast the next one up, and, and so on and so forth. Whereas this... Is more determined by you've got the ability to do it then you can do it otherwise you can't. So you have to make first of all an aptitude check which is rolling your set amount of dice. Mm. Um, you're rolling a particular die type determined by which trait the hex is aligned to. Which means let's say you've got a hex that's aligned with dexterity you're using the die type of your dexterity um, stat mm. and your stats there's, there's about 10 of them I think from memory Um, each have different die types, which also are determined by having drawn cards from a deck of of cards at the beginning of the game. (laughs) So it's all card based almost! It it also sounds fiddly as fuck. It took me a while to get my head around it. (laughs) But the character gen section is where you end up determining all your stats. You look up what uh, what number the card is and look up what suit it is. That tells you how many dice and of what type you're rolling for that type of stat. Hmm. Each spell is aligned to a particular stat. You then look at your skill level and that tells you, combined with what die type it is, how many of that die type you're rolling. You roll the dice, you're aiming to get a five or more on any one of those dice because you're only looking at the top number that any one of those dice generate. But they do explode. So if you're rolling d12s, you roll the 12, then you can roll again, you can roll again. As long as you keep rolling 12s, that is your one single die result. If you get a five, that's a success. Any raise, otherwise known as 5 Another five, again, on top of that, so you're aiming for five-year-old at 10 on a D12, that's two, uh, a success and a raise. Raises can help you get additional effects on what your spell does. Either it deals more damage or it has a higher effect or longer-lasting. It depends on the spell that you're casting or the hex that you're casting. And also, with the more raises you get, it also means that that's how many more cards you can draw when you then have your poker hand. Ah, so you do your roll to first of all contact the Manitou. Um, how spells or hexes work in Deadlands is that you're effectively allowing a spirit to possess you so that you can gain some of its power and channel it for whatever desire you wish. Of a Manatee? A Manitou. <laughs> not a Manatee. <laughs> oh. maybe, maybe that's like what they are when you play it down in yeah. Florida. But yeah. <laughs> not, out in the, not out in the dusty west. Okay. <laughs> so then you draw five cards or plus however many depending on how many raises you got on your initial roll. And you compare it against the poker hand required for the particular hex that you're after. Now, most of the hands that you require aren't particularly high. It will either say, oh, you need an ace high, or you need any pair, or jacks or better, or mm-hmm. two pair. I don't think I've seen any, at least in the call rule book, from Remy I mean, that go above two pair. Mm. Uh, but they did release a whole other two books full of uh, hexes. You, you get the hand. You don't play it against someone, the hand. Just... It's what you draw from the deck, and then so it's the best get hand you can make. poker hand. Right, yeah. I see.
0: And it's always five. No, it's five plus any raises. Any raises, right. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Having played RPGs with some people who struggle to understand percentile roles in Call of Cthulhu, Mm -hmm. I'm just imagining how a number of players I know would cope with a system this complex.
2: They wouldn't. (laughs) Yeah. No, yeah. trust me, I've, I've been with some some people like that, and, yeah, this is not a game I'd run for them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- th- this is a game, it sounds like, or oh, particularly character class, where you'd have to choose your players so carefully.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need someone that understands how it works and get, I suppose, that an appreciation for the type of style of this particular play as well, because it's, it's yeah. deliberately bringing in poker because you are playing a, a kind of gambler. You are buying into a part of uh, weird, well, I say, weird Wild West mythology. hmm say so something definitely iconic. Some, some examples of some of the hexes that are in there that quite, um, some amused me and some thought, well, that could be really uh, really useful. You can do it to do mundane things like increase or decrease stats, um, to hear through another target's ears or see through their eyes, uh, gain insight into the past, so almost looking at it like a tarot deck, you're getting an insight into something that's happened, uh, to create shadows or even step through them, very much like Optimization from Vampire Masquerade. Um, To do a magical blast, which is a beam of light that takes off your wind or hit points equivalent.
1: So, So in the colour of the game, in the actual gameplay,
2: is the Huckster character actually drawing cards as well to do this? It's described as it can be quite a cerebral battle but that it's manifested by physically whipping out a deck of cards and then quickly laying them down on the ground. Some hexes take long to cast as a result because you're having to either lay multiple hands or you're going through a more longer pro- um, prolonged battle with the manitou inside you.
1: But it also sounds like then that it's going to be dependent on the environment in which you're doing it. So let's say that you're doing it as a, a tornado is building up and you're outside. You lay down your cards before you have just read them. They're off in the wind.
2: Yep. Unless you pull out, potentially pull out a hand, hold the deck in one hand, and then fan the first uh, few cards yes. off the top and hold them up, trying to keep hold of them. <laughs> There's a great bit, uh, illustration at the beginning of that the, the huckster section in the rulebook where it has this uh, gunfight happening in the bar, the tables thrown over, and the guys laying out cards on the t- on the ground quickly. <laughs> but yeah, I, I love hucksters. I think they're say in, by far the best character class of any game out there, but I, just because I love poker.
1: Well then, Paul, let's let's move on. What, what's your choice for your your next one?
0: You may find that I have a bit of a theme to my three top mechanics. They're all from (laughs) D&D? No, they're not all from D&D, as good as it is. Uh, They're all to do with death. Uh, This one isn't necessarily to do with death, but death is linked to it. Find if you're creative enough, everything's to do with death. Well, indeed. Mm -hmm. And this one is uh, The Darkest Self from Monster Hearts by Avery Alder. in in monster hearts you all play monsters so think of kind of world of darkness so you could be playing vampires you could be playing werewolves any of those kind of monsters and many many others and each player plays a different type of monster who are in their mundane life kind of perhaps attend an american high school and they face conflicts and challenges between them and sometimes as the as a result of a certain conflict, one of the options that you can choose from is to become your darkest self. But also, when you're reduced through physical damage to what might otherwise be death, you can choose instead to embrace your darkest self. So, if I can just read the werewolf one. Werewolf, your darkest self... You transform into a terrifying wolf creature. You crave power and dominance, and those are earned through bloodshed. If anyone attempts to stand in your way, they must be brought down and made to bleed. You escape your darkest self when you wound someone you really care about, or the sun rises, whichever happens first. And I like the way in which, A, this is an pretty much always an option that the player can choose to become their darkest self or they could just say, okay well actually in this situation you know I'm, I'm, my characters died And that the way out of it it's not through a dice roll or another mechanic, it's something that happens in the fiction. So you know the mm-hmm. sun rises uh, some of them are like you know somebody restrains you long enough for you to sort of recover your wits. Each darkest self is unique to that type of monster and each is characteristic of that type of monster.
1: Yeah, and the, the ways out of them are pretty strongly thematically linked mm,
0: to that. Absolutely. So again, this is something that very much reinforces the setting. And if if you've watched Buffy, this is something that happens to Angel. Because one of the, the things is if they, if they have sex, then certain ones that can trigger the darkest self and um for that's that's exactly what's happens to angel and we see it with another, another character yeah. willow I, which kind of becomes her darkest self
1: it happens with oz as well doesn't it
0: yeah yeah so yeah. it's something that's very much influenced by those sort of things but again it's a perhaps more of a narrative mechanic in this case than the than, than the D one that i chose but again it's fun to play because it changes mm. the way you play your character you're still playing the same character but You know, it's taking the reins off and, you know, you just run wild for a while and become almost an antagonist to the rest of the group temporarily.
1: Or at least very
0: much the monster you were
1: trying to suppress up to that point.
0: Yeah. A bit like almost, if you're going to parallel it to Call of Cthulhu, you know, it's an episode of insanity where you kind of lose control of yourself and have fun playing a, a different style of character.
1: Yeah, I, I I really like that mechanic, and I like the fact that, you know, whenever it kicks off like that, you know the game is going to get really interesting. Yeah. It's rather than, you know, the kind of death mechanic or, you know, adversarial mechanic that that in some games might put you off playing, this is something that, as a player, you look forward to. Your character is going to get screwed over, but it's going to get screwed over in a fun way.
0: Yeah. And you can see the monster, you know, the person who is, you know, the vampire or the werewolf or whatever, the stereotypical ones in fiction, in films, you know, they're about to be killed and they kind of break out and become something greater but more horrible. That's the darkest self. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay, well, for my next choice, I have gone for something all three of us have played, but we've not talked about on the podcast before, I think, uh, which is The Mountain Witch. Uh, in particular, the trust mechanic
0: well, for The course. Mountain Witch,
1: which is really the core of it. I mean, The Mountain Witch is a game about a group of Ronin in feudal Japan, who you know, masterless samurai who have been. ...tasked with, or for various personal reasons, whatever, are travelling up Mount Fuji together. They've they've come together as a group, they've met for the first time, and they're travelling up Mount Fuji, facing all sorts of supernatural dangers on the way, and perhaps some natural dangers... All the way up to this temple, this palace up at the top, which is the home of the mountain witch. And the witch is this malevolent figure who rules over Mount Fuji. His his influence is malevolent in the lives of everyone around. But... The ronin all have dark secrets. These are random things that you pick up at the start of the game. And they may be the fact that you're secretly working for the witch or owe him a favour or something like that. Or reasons why you might end up betraying the people you're travelling with. And this is really important, because the game is all about trust and betrayal. And the trust mechanic, I mean, it's, it's a fairly simple thing, and it's a bit fiddly to explain, but it's basically a score that you keep. Each player character has a trust relationship with each other player character, and this is not symmetrical. If the three of us were playing, I might have, you know, a fairly good trust relationship with Paul, a fairly poor one with, with Matt, but Matt's character might have a, you know, might trust my character, and, you know, Paul's character might distrust mine. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, 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 it is not directly related. The whole thing is set up in the first place according to uh, the astrological sign uh, under which the characters were born, which sort of influences their personalities a bit. And so, you know, if you're of, of astrological signs that traditionally don't get on, then you don't trust each other. If you're of compatible astrological signs, then you trust each other. But this changes throughout the game. And so the game is broken up into a number of short chapters, and each chapter, you get a chance to adjust your trust scores in every other character. And you can do one of three things at the start of each chapter, which is you can increase your trust with another character by one. No more than one, just one. If, for example, I decided that you know, I've been completely mistaken about your character, Matt, you've you know, bailed me out a few times, I might decide that I, I trust you now. Damn right! So, you know, I, I, I can increase my trust in your character by one. Um, you can leave it the same... Or you can reduce it by any amount. So let's say Paul inevitably has backstabbed me at some stage, and
2: <laughs> he was on a panel with you one time and decided to argue that L games were versions of DnD.
1: <laughs> at that point, I could wipe out all my trust with him. Now, the reason why this is important is that trust can be used for a few different things. It can be used uh, is a spendable resource, and it refreshes between chapters. You can use it to help another character in any conflict. And this is a really important thing because, I mean, you can help without trust, but trust makes the help so much more potent. And yeah, there are a lot of conflicts, particularly if you're facing really severe dangers or big monsters or something like that. There are a lot of times when you will have to rely on trust in order to survive, or at least to make your way up to the top of of Mount Fuji. You can also use these points of trust to seize narration from another player character. So if Paul, uh, for example, had been in a combat uh, with some monster and you know, had, had perhaps fought it to a bit of a stalemate, I could take over narration and, and say that you know, perhaps you're know, in the process you took a bit of damage or something like mm. that. The most important thing it can be used for, however, is betraying the other player characters. Why do you always have such an expression of glee on your <laughs> face
2: when you say that? <laughs>
1: uh, so, so yeah, you can spend the points to basically completely hose other players' dice rolls. And you, know, you get to the point in the game where you've perhaps got to the inner parts of the mansion, which is palace. You're perhaps encountering the Mountain Witch or you know, some of his closest uh, associates or bodyguards and at that point you think it's a good time to throw one of the other players under the bus or, or perhaps reveal the fact that you've been working for the Witch all along and that is the point at which you, you want to perhaps blow all the trust that they've put in you and completely screw them over. That is generally a fairly spectacular moment in the game. It's a fairly simple, elegant mechanic, and it's you know thematically so perfect. Our good friend Malcolm Craig borrowed this mechanic pretty much wholesale for his game uh, Cold City. He borrowed it uh, with permission, but uh, Cold City, I mean, much more than Hot War that followed it, is a game about trust and betrayal as well in in the Cold War. And you know he adapted you know almost exactly that to that mechanic, and you know works perfectly there as well.
2: As I say, I, I know it more from Cold City because I've not played Mountain Witch.
0: Yeah, I mean that was one of the early indie games really around yeah. the time of my life in Master and so on. Yeah, it came out in 2005. There's a, there's a second edition which was kickstarted last year. Oh, really? Is,
1: yeah. I mean it's totally uh, passed me by. Yeah, uh, it was about a year ago and it, it was supposed to have delivered by now. I think it's something like 6 months overdue at this stage.
0: Huh. I've been tempted to buy that cuz I have fond memories of playing it. Mm. It's an RPG Kickstarter. Of
2: oh. course it's going to run overdue. <laughs> yes.
1: But yeah, when it actually becomes readily available again, I really recommend this game. And with the second edition, what they've done, I think more than with the first edition, is offered, you know, sort of reskinnings of it as well. Mm. At its core it is still that, you know, Ronin going up to Mount Fuji. But you could very much use it to play, say, a reservoir dogs type game or something like that, which I think was one of the
2: the hacks that they first did. Surely Paranoia. Yep. Yeah. Hikers going up Snowden. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to face
1: the mountain witch at the top of Mount Snow <laughs> uh, Yeah, that, that would be a very different game <laughs> Yeah Okay, over to you, Matt
2: This is one, admittedly, a, t- a very specific subset of mechanics that deal with one instance Now, I thought about it and thought, actually, it is quite specific, and then realised there's another game which does almost exactly the same thing, but in a slightly different circumstance. So I'm going to go with um, present these as two options of one very large random table, because I love random tables. Right, the first one is from a game we've talked about. The second one is also from a game we've talked about. (laughs) But the first one is from a game we've talked about fairly recently. (laughs) The tension is killing me. Get with it. This lovely town in Kansas called Potter's Lake. Ah. This is the Destiny card mechanic from Heaven and Earth 2nd Edition, which is the Tri-Stack DX variant that uses two decks of cards for its resolution. You might see a theme connected with my first choice here. (laughs) Now, the Fate deck, you draw one card off the deck at the beginning of each session and you keep it stored face down so no one else apart from you knows what it is. The Fate deck is communal in the middle of the table, that's what you effectively substitute your dice rolls with. So everyone reaches forward, draws a number of cards to make their action, compares the suit, compares the number against the stats on their sheet to work out what their overall number is they would have rolled and inverted commas to see if their action succeeds or fails. But the Destiny deck, that's the one where you draw one and keep it face down. Each card, all the way from Ace up to King at the top and all the suits, all have a different effect. You can cash that card in for the effect anytime you fail a roll or your character would be in danger. And they have some weird effects. Such as uh, the King of Spades is do something physically impossible, like punch through a wall or flip a car, do something that ordinary, right. ordinarily you would physically be incapable of doing. Uh, the Ace of Spades, die! <laughs> It's that simple. It's the riffing off your death examples. That might be one the interests you. Well, who because dies? Your target. All right. Okay. It's, it's <laughs> anything You spontaneously die. but <laughs> well, you, you can use the cards on yourself or right. someone else. Okay.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah um, there, there are other ways you could water it down. Is It, it does multiples of damage instead. Yeah. But yeah, generally it's the death card. It's someone at the receiving end of that card dies. <laughs> uh, the Queen of Clubs gives you a clue or inspiration into your current situation or problem that's facing you. Uh, the Two of Clubs. There is a degree of downfall or disappointment that's coming your way. Uh, Ten of Diamonds, financial gain. Hey, you might just win the lottery if you get out of that combat. Mm. Uh, the Seven of Diamonds, uh, you come to the attention of the supernatural. That's completely down to the GM how that's going uh, to roll. How you get screwed over. Yep. And the Four of Hearts, reality unravels, and it almost the way it reads is, see Azathoth, go nuts. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, it's yeah. pretty cool. So it's yeah. yeah. So you've got 52 cards and everyone's a
2: different outcome. Yep. The GM has no idea what you're holding, so it's it's a surprise when it comes up. I mean, how much could you just port that into other games? How much mm. is it tied to Potter's Lake? That, it's it's all just general effects. The suits are more related to the type of thing it can do, whether it's a physical thing, whether it's a soul like willpower thing. Or if it's good luck, bad luck, etc. So you could just take that wholesale and use it elsewhere, okay. wherever you want, because it's not—it nice. doesn't really have a mechanical description. It's just this is the thing it does. Yeah. Um, you then interpret that thing in or through the lens of the mechanics you're using for the rest of the game. Hmm. The other random table, much quicker to uh, to go through. Is from another game, I said that we've mentioned a long time ago. Imagine it's late at night. And you are really, really hungry. You have a desperate case of the munchies. Yes. Yes. And you <laughs> Scott knows where I'm going. And you desperately need a burger. Just pray you don't get a Mac Attack special order. From Unknown Armies, uh, from the Break Today book, the special orders are magically imbued with charges that adepts would use to power their magic. Chomp on a burger. Have a D100 random, exam- random power or something happen to you. <laughs> Um, It's, it notes that the GM can just throw any weird effect they like at them, but then it gives the D-100 table for a whole load of crazy shit that can fall upon you. The general distribution is anything at the low end is good, anything at the high end is bad. Such as the extremes. Roll 1. Congratulations, if you weren't an avatar, you are now with 10%. If you're an avatar, gain another 10% in your skill. It's all good. (laughs) 100. Spontaneous combustion somewhere in the next 33 minutes. Boom! So yeah, you, can, you get the idea of the kind of severity of things here. So, so basically, you've chosen
1: two mechanics which could lead to your character exploding.
2: Yeah. Well, say there are some other great things in that in that D one hundred table. Like number eleven, um, understand animals, but you can only do so between the hours of midnight and one a.m. This is a permanent effect. Thirty-eight, and this is why I was thinking earlier about ah, this is a power I can see happening quite well with Paul. Touch wallpaper. The thoughts of the person who put the wallpaper up are then beamed into your mind.
1: (laughs) £50 a fucking roll!
2: (laughs) Which was exactly going through my mind. 46. Your dental work receives radio from 1987 for five hours.
0: I hear radio waves in my head.
2: (laughs) 62. Plastic becomes invisible for the next 24 hours. 70. The colour purple becomes grey and you cannot remember or conceive it. It has just been wiped from your mind. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're random. Um, Eighty-four, uh, moisturising lotion. It mean, means that you come out in rashes. Um, curses written in Greek letters or blessings written in Braille. And ninety-one, you get a third nipple. You could you do, you could do Scaramanga cosplay. <laughs>
1: Am I right in remembering from this that there's also a little description of the the mice or the rats that live behind the McDonald's that have been feasting on the discarded leftovers of these and have basically gained sentience and, and have made their own little sort of mock human society?
2: Yeah, except we call it Mac attacks, we don't want to get sued. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So, sorry.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know what made me think of McDonald's.
2: <laughs> yeah, apart from the last picture in the book. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, they've, they've become their own little township around the back with their own little feudal <laughs> order, yeah. They're great. See, so, yeah, I, I love D100 random crazy shit tables.
0: Over to you then, Paul. Okay, well, my third and final choice for favourite mechanics is yet another one that deals with death and dying, potentially. So, uh, yeah, because I started drawing up a list and I saw these three and thought, well, they all kind of thematically linked, so I'll, I'll stick with those. And this is the mechanic of Fallout from Dogs in the Vineyard. Oh, yes. Uh, so, without going into, you know, all the details of how the, the game system works... Buckets, when of you, dice! Well, the, mm. It does use big handfuls of dice, but essentially you get into conflicts during the game, as you do in, in most games. And whether it's physical or verbal or gunfire or whatever, you can end up uh, losing a step in the conflict. And if you lose the step significantly, you take what is called a die of fallout. And if the conflict is just on the verbal level, the, the die size is only small, it's a D4. If it's physical, it's a D6. If it's using weapons like knives or clubs, it's a D8. And if it's all the way up to firearms if you you know escalate up to that level you're taking d10s of fallout and then at the end of the conflict and this is one of the things i like about it is that you have all that stuff happen but you do survive to the end of the combat and then you roll your fallout so you might die at the end of the the thing or you know if certainly if you've used firearms you may well find that you know you have taken a bunch of bullets a few moments after the conflict you're coughing up blood and dying so you gather up all of your dice that fall out and roll them. Any ones that you roll are good. They add experience points in effect to your character, and there's a, a, a menu of things that you can choose to improve your character with. But then you add up the two highest dice scores. So obviously, if it's just verbal, the most you can roll is an eight. And there's a menu of options. And up to the, the kind of eight level, there are things like adding a point to, or perhaps subtracting a point from a a stat or a trait, perhaps making a minor modification to uh, relationships or traits that are listed on your character sheet. So it modifies your character in some way, either temporarily or perhaps permanently. And as you step up the scale, it can go all the way up to 20, which is like two tens. it's gonna be, where you're dying, well, where you're dead actually. I think
1: yeah, because, be dying. You, yeah and I, I th- because there's a lower level where you're dying.
0: But, yeah, there's, a, there's, a, yeah. there's a, a, like a heavily wounded stroke dying level, like yeah. about 16, 17. And if, yeah,
1: you, I, I, if I remember correctly, at that point, someone else can initiate a conflict yeah,
0: to save you. That's right. And if you get to that level, then you are pretty much at death's door. But the nice thing here is that the other player characters, or maybe one or a group of them, can get together and try and heal you but this is done through a kind of narrated struggle. So the GM then uses all those dice of fallout you had against the other player characters mm. in, a, in a kind of duel to try and save your life. So the players are doing things like perhaps staunching the blood with pieces of cloth all the way to Or, pr- or, praying, GM. or praying for you, which yeah, is or a praying big, part, for you. big
1: part of dogs in the vineyard. And the
0: GM yeah. can be using those dice from your fallout pool, from all those bad things that happened to you in that previous conflict, to put them forward and say you know there's there's whirls of dust flying up in the air and you can see demons whirling in the air and they're pulling at you they're unplugging the the cloth from the wound and the, the and sucking the blood out of the dying person you're very free to narrate all sorts of weirdness and and demonic happenings perhaps so it makes for a really interesting conflict and maybe the player characters lose and that character dies mm. but it makes a Grounds for an interesting death and a fun conflict, you know, fun mechanic there. I think. Yeah, sadly Dogs in the Vineyard is out of print now. Uh,
1: Vincent Baker, who wrote it, who who also wrote things like Apocalypse World, decided that he didn't like the game anymore. Not not the mechanics. He didn't like the setting. He felt it it reinforced too many tropes that he didn't like about uh, the myth of the Old West. So, yeah, he's let it go out of print and he's got no plans to to reprint it. However, I did find out recently that, I can't remember who it is, I'll put a link in the show notes, someone got in contact with Vincent Baker and basically said, can I borrow the mechanics and make a generic system out of them? And you can now get this on, on RPG Now. The system is now, I think, just called Dogs.
2: Hmm. I know the original Dog's book, if those bibliophiles out there like me desperately want a copy. Thankfully, I've got one because I don't want to spend the amount it's going for currently on the second-hand market. That is an expensive book.
0: Is it? Oh, gosh. Yeah.
2: I I have two copies. If you want over 100 quid, go and knock yourself out. (laughs) And what's your third option, Scott? Well, after having
1: talked about two indie games, I figured I'd go for something a bit more old school here, and, and go back to my my early days of gaming back in the nineteen eighties, back when I played Champions. My friend Bill Keats in New York ran a long and fantastic Champions campaign. That yeah, I played with a number of my friends, you know, including a few listeners to the show like Dave Brewer and Saul Minter. And, yeah, it it was a a fantastic, fantastic game. So Champions, for those who don't know it, it's a superhero game that used a set of mechanics which became the generic hero system over time and were used for various other specific games like uh, Justice, Inc. and Fantasy Hero, Space Hero, Danger International. But uh, Champions was the first one. It was, I, I suppose, a comparatively complex game compared to the kind of stuff I play these days but a lot of the complexity was there was player facing it was to do with character creation and powers so it's not necessarily that complex a game to play but it does require a fair bit of maths and and crunch to actually get going and being a point-by-game, all the powers, or the skills, or the stats, etc. in there are things that your character buys, uh, gadgets and so on. And so it's, it's a, a surprisingly rigid prescriptive game in that respect. So your character doesn't just, for example, go down to the gun store and buy a new gun. Um, it doesn't matter how much money your character has. If you're going to have a gun in the next combat, you better have the character creation points to buy that gun as a a killing attack, as a ranged killing attack. And so this leads to perhaps a lack of versatility in the characters because if you think about the way superheroes work in comics, they're always finding new and cunning ways to use their powers. And champions made it comparatively difficult to do that. But in one of the supplements that came out in a, a... book called champions three they introduced this idea of variable power pools, and this was a great compromise between this this very prescriptive system and allowing versatility so the idea was that you had a pool of points that you put into this variable power pool. Say you wanted to be able to use a a power or a combination of powers that was worth 50 points in the game. You'd have to spend 75 points in total during character creation. you spend 50 points for the pool and then an additional 50% of, of what you put in. So it would cost you 75 points in total. And that means that between combats or between conflicts, you could change those powers, that 50 points of powers, into anything from the rules that you wanted. If your character was, say, a Doctor Strange-type character, you could use it to change the spells you had. So maybe, you know, before then you were flying around, but now you knew that there was an enemy that you were going to have to take down peacefully, so you were going to put it in restraining them to, you know, create, say, some kind of psychic manacles or knock them out somehow. Even that isn't particularly versatile, however. So they put in additional mechanics that allowed you to... I, well, for a start, actually make it more restrictive, put limitations on on how often you could you could change your powers. But you could also have a skill, buy a skill, that would allow you to change your, your powers on the fly. And so then, you know, th- that gave you a lot of versatility in how you created the character. And for me, I mean, what I really liked about this, I mean, it w- was a couple of things. I mean, I tend to get very frustrated sometimes with limitations like that in games. I found it sometimes, you know, a bit tricky, butting my head against this artificial idea of, you know, no, you can't do that because you don't have points in that power or that skill. And so it was nice being able to change that up. But, yeah, I mean, it also just struck me as, you know, such an elegant way of working within the constraints that they placed on that system, but then allowing it to be versatile, It was the first time I'd ever encountered a game that allowed that kind of player creativity. Because before then, it was sort of, you know, here are your stats, here are your skills, here are your spells or whatever. You know, here's exactly what they do. And, you know, this is what you've got now. And so it was just nice suddenly being able to be in a position of, of thinking... Yeah, I can think of a creative solution to this this problem, and suddenly I'm not constrained by the choices I made during character creation. Mm. I mean, obviously there are a lot of games now which do that far more simply and
0: far better, but it was just the first time I came across that,
1: and it made a huge impact on me. Mm.
0: Perhaps to a lesser degree, i found that in Ars Magica. Mm. I mean, it does yeah. depend somewhat on your various stats in the types of uh, magical specialisms you take, but you've got the improvised magic where you can put a form with a technique. So if you can think of something, you know, like you need to cross a chasm and you've got Creo Teram, you could form a bridge or maybe, you know, you can create a, a gust of wind that blows you across or whatever. So you can, there's a lot of different ways you can put the various arts together to create some sort of effect um, that you wish to, to make. So there was a lot more, you know, it wasn't just, I think what you're saying, like there wasn't just formulaic, powers that you could use you could be much more creative
1: you were still choosing from a menu of powers right and you were still constrained by your character concept so you know for example if you were playing a gadgeteer type character it was an understanding that you know your power pool would represent you creating new gadgets or modifying the gadgets you had so you you wouldn't all of a sudden be able to
2: use your power pool to create a magic spell i like flexibility like that it means that as you say you've had that Problem where it's oh, I've got a great idea, but then my skills don't allow me to yeah. do it. Mm. As I found recently while playing Delta Green, while trying to make a bomb, and then realised I had zero demolition skill. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, over to you then, Matt. Yeah, play play us out with your selection
2: If I'd been a betting man, I would have lost at this point because I was. I would swear we were going to cross over on something, but we're not. Hey, there mm. are a lot of game mechanics <laughs> out there. Certainly, yeah. So this is to say, by far the broadest of my choices, and probably won't take that long to go through, but mainly comes down to the fact that dice hate me. As I made quite clear, even to the fact we have the demon cursed dice trap that I still keep to one side with my dice and threaten them with in case they keep rolling bad.
0: And your first two options have revolved around cards.
2: Yep, see. Well this is to give me more options of when I do end up rolling dice, that I can choose which ones are good and which ones get thrown away into a box or back into the... Uh, you like the Santa the Claus damages. of dice. Yeah, I just got, I've got a whole wall of them at home. <laughs> I'll have to do a, a picture of my uh, dice rack with all my different boxes and codes of codes of dice in there. This one comes from a game, which is the first edition of, not the second edition.
0: Oh my god, the anticipation of what Matt is going to <laughs> say every time. I, I, I can get like, keep game you on. Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> Go for it, Matt. Go on. It was recently picked up by Chaosium for its second edition, 7C. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah,
2: right. oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I really like the roll and keep system. It was also used by AEG when they did uh, Legends of the Five Rings. The basic idea is that you, when you roll a particular skill, or you roll a particular damage type, you roll X amount of dice, but you keep a lesser amount of them. So let's say you rolled 1, a 5 and a 10. That's a roll 3. If it was roll three, keep two of them, you can choose to keep any two combination to two of those dice. Mm-hmm. High is generally good, you go for the five and the ten. And also, a bit like Deadlands, the highest number explodes, so it keeps on going. So yeah, it, it just, the fact that it gave me that flexibility to say, oh, I've got a bucket load of shit dice here, but I've got at least one decent one. It was that option to choose which ones <laughs> that actually might be on your side, and allowed
0: you to identify treacherous dice that you would ostracise and put in a punishment cell. So, with that seventh seat, if you have certain skills and talents, I mean would it be like you can roll five, keep three, or mm-hmm. roll seven, keep four, things like that yeah. would it your stats on your sheet would dictate how many you roll and how many you keep, yeah, and depending on what situation you're in as well right so there'd be modifiers mm-hmm. right there, there can be also modifiers depending
2: on what your target number is, which I quite like as well that when you've got something like using that example, roll seven, keep five you're probably going to have a good chance of rolling some fairly high numbers there. Mm. So you can take a gamble before the dice are rolled to increase the target number. Un- unlike Savage Worlds or um, Deadlands, as I mentioned previously, where it's, oh, you exceed the number by five, therefore you get a raise. You have to hire the target number first and then exceed that to get your raise in 7c. So it starts at five, and then you can increment it by five going up and up and up.
0: And are you adding the dice pool together? or Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, And remember that the dice explode as well. Right. So yes. Potentially, I'm thinking, oh, if I'm rolling seven and keeping five, then the odds are one of those is going to be a 10. Even if that rolls only gets an average result later, that could be 15.
0: I'll knock my five up to a 15, and I've got a fairly good chance of getting two raises. So you can sort of up the stakes, say, rather than just achieving half the goal, I want to achieve the full goal yeah, in one go.
2: Or... And in some cases, it might say that you need an amount of raises to be able to get something if it is a particularly difficult roll.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah,
2: I just love the fact mm. that it had that variety in there that you could, sure. say, choose which of your dice were. And the more important thing for me, as I mentioned, yeah, get identifying which dice go into the punishment box.
0: Meanwhile, on social media... now We've had an iTunes review from Martin Good in Sweden. He says, Hi and low, this podcast gives you all... As ghoulish and horrific as its themes might seem, this wonderful podcast is as enjoyable on a sunny morning with a cup of freshly brewed coffee in hand as it is on a gloomy evening strolling through the neighbourhood cemetery. Whilst maintaining their calming voices and positive spirits... (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever been described
1: as having a positive spirit,
0: Paul? Not in my life. I I was going to say, which one of us is positive? (laughs) The Friends explore the worlds of H.P. Lovecraft and other horror writers through interesting discussions about stories, deities and characters. Beyond providing immense information on literature and tomes, the podcast has really helped me in the process of writing my own scenario. Although I still can't seem to figure out how to make cuts in the approximately 25 to 30 NPCs I've created.
1: Matt, Matt is grinning at this stage. He's I, in, Matt, Matt has found a kindred spirit. <laughs> yes. It's not just
2: it's me.
0: <laughs> Anyhow, I'd like to thank you very much for sharing your podcast with the world. I highly recommend it. To everyone. Well, if you
1: want to cut down on those number of NPCs, get Matt as a player and have the monologue.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three or four words. bang. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but thank you very much, Martin. Uh, we we really appreciate that. That is a lovely review. And if anyone else out there fancies writing us a review, we would be ever so grateful. I mean, they not only boost our fragile little egos, but they help other people find the podcast. And that has, has got to be a good thing, right? Right?
2: Right? Right? Make your sun check now. We've also had some great feedback on our recent episode about the yellow sign. Uh, this is a really interesting one, actually, that uh, I read from um, Arachima. Surprised the discussion of whether there was any moral to the story overlooked the parallel to Eden. The book is even compared to a snake. Girl runs off with book, obtains forbidden knowledge, man who failed to protect her from it then willingly partakes in the same sin out of grief. Yeah, I really hadn't considered that.
1: No, neither had I. And, you know, in retrospect, it does seem pretty obvious. Mm. The tree in the Garden of Eden was, you know, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you know, it was gaining that knowledge or gaining this forbidden knowledge that was humanity's first sin. And yeah, reading The the King in Yellow, you know, in that story is all about gaining forbidden knowledge. Oh, truth.
0: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And Stephen AD314 on Reddit says, Another great episode. I'm enjoying the slow multi-episode explorations of stories and books rather than trying to rush it all into a single episode. Regarding Tessie's death, I find the language evokes something altogether different than physical violence. When I read it, it seems to me like she was the one initiating the action, with some measure of choice. Along with the description of her cry as soft, it doesn't sound like a violent end to me, but a desperate escape. Perhaps to avoid the fate of the narrator, whose fate seems tied to the king in yellow." And I don't think there's a whole lot to this. But the first thing the language calls to mind is the Christian crucifixion, which uses a similar phrase when Jesus dies, he gave up, yielded his spirit. Yeah, I'm finding it
1: fascinating how much biblical allegory people are finding in chambers. And I mean, it certainly is definitely there, as, as we discussed. Mm. You know, the, um, you know, in the Court of the Dragon even ends with a biblical quotation, so this you know clearly isn't accidental. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah, mm. I guess because it's not necessarily the lens through which I look at the world most of the time, a lot of these things hadn't occurred to me, but yeah, that, that, that really, again, seems to make quite a lot of sense. And finally, Kathy Lambert on Discord said, I'm definitely going to write a Cthulhu romance and dedicate it to Matt.
0: Hooray! Why?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Paul and I wholeheartedly endorse this, We Kathy. do,
0: we should do, yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and she continued, And if the food discussion was serious, you can combine Rhode Island seafood and Cthulhu one of Rhode Island's specialties is Rhode Island-style calamari, fried and drizzled in spicy garlic olive oil, tasty local food, and tentacles. How can you go wrong?
0: Well, that sounds good. Usually it with a
2: failed uh, sand check. But uh, um, as I mentioned, I'd, I'd quite like to go to the uh, what, is, what, what was Marconi's restaurant in Providence when we head out to Necronomicon, so I think I might, uh, might brave the calamari. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and Not tentacles yet. down yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm not well, usually one for seafood, but... while reading a bit of Lovecraftian romance.
0: No.
1: <laughs> and let me just take this opportunity to give us a little bit of self-promotion, because we constantly fail to do this. We have all sorts of social media presences upon which you can find us. If you go to BlasmusTomes.com, you can find links to them all. But yes, um, do look for us on Facebook, on Reddit, on Twitter, on Discord, uh, and in your dreams tonight.
0: And finally, to wrap up, what are our final thoughts on our discussion about game mechanics? There
1: are a lot of mechanics about death, aren't
2: there? I was about to say, Paul's selection is very morbid.
1: Well, it <laughs> says the man whose mechanics involve people blowing up.
2: Yeah, but they make rats sentient as well. And you get a tasty burger out of it as well. You, you combine the two with the SOE's exploding rats, just <laughs> a kind yeah. of mystical version. Yeah. Eat this exploding rat in a burger
0: bun. Well, but, I think, in part from a game point of view it's just down to end game is when your character dies so there are all sorts of mechanics on the route but there are always going to be those end game Mm. mechanics for taking your character out of the story and usually that's death
1: but in terms of you know the kinds of things we've discussed it's interesting i think the way that certain isolated mechanics or you know certain Aspects of a game system can, you know, really jump out at you and, you know, perhaps influence the way you game, you know. um, I mean, certainly, you know, there are all sorts of individual rules in particularly Dogs in the Vineyard, which, I mean, not only appeal to me an awful lot as, as I was playing that game, but uh, have really shaped the way that I approach other games, particularly, say, the town creation mechanics. The town creation mechanics are all about how to create a situation rather than a scenario. You create a, a location in this town where something is wrong and, and the situation is fested, it's escalated. So maybe, you know, it was a minor sin in the first place, a sin of pride. Uh maybe, you know, the town steward just decided that, you know, because he was better than everyone else in the town, I mean he's the town steward after all, that he deserved to go out and spend some of the town's money on a brand new horse that was just, you know, uh, kind of a bit more handsome than everyone else's horses Horses. and you know through the mechanics of the the town creation you look at the way that escalates and leads to further sins and so on and you, you decide at what stage to stop but you know it can end up in demonic presences in the town manifesting overtly to death you know murder mutilation and none of these things have any expectation of how anyone is going to solve them. You're just creating problems. And I think that was a very eye-opening thing for me when writing scenarios later on, Mm. that a lot of the scenarios that I've read from the 1980s that I really didn't like are ones where... The writers sort of had a solution in mind, and sort of said, "Right, you know, here is how the player characters are going to fix this. Either here are some very blatant clues that tell them how to participate in this solution that I've, I've, you know, scripted for them, or alternatively, here's no guidance at all for how they're going to figure it out. So they'll just blunder around blindly until but they get until, it right. Yeah, until they guess the right thing. You know, that's it. But if you present people with problems, then it is down to them to come up with the solutions." Mm. And so, yeah, I think, you know, there are all sorts of little mechanics like this that we probably stumble across in games where, you know, a light goes off in our head and we can, you know, think, yeah, you know, actually, I can apply
0: this in all sorts of places. And sometimes we hear that argument that, oh, the game is great tonight, we hardly use the mechanics at all. And I think, well, the, ge- the mechanics aren't that great then, are they? Because mm-hmm. when the mechanics are good and they come into play, they should A, be fun and interesting to use on a game level, and B, help you to build more interesting story. Yes. Or create interesting dilemmas, because it's a role-playing game. Yeah, I, what I really like
1: in RPGs is when the unexpected happens and you, you have to find ways of, of dealing with it. And mechanics like the ones we discussed in Archipelago... Where they do introduce random elements, where they you know, introduce the unexpected on a regular basis, you know that that is just fantastic for creating dynamic,
0: breathing games. I mean, you seem quite drawn to quite complicated mechanics. Some of the ones you picked, Matt.
2: Yeah, I, I like them to some extent as if they're complicated, but might do it in an interesting way. Um, to some extent, the like the mage, the awakening mechanics. They're quite hard, but a lot of it is because it's interlocking. You sort one bit out, that sets something else up. You sort something else up elsewhere, that links into this. It's like a jigsaw puzzle, putting it all together. That that in itself seems quite satisfying when it comes together and works. And especially with just the aesthetics around them as well, they all seem to be a combination that really appealed to me. But then there are some games where it's just overly complex for the sake of it, and I go, hell no, I'm not <laughs> hmm.
0: I'm
2: not wasting my life trying to understand how the hell this works.
0: Until next time, folks, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me.
1: Hello. Blasphemous-tomes.com.